Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. My name is Drew Burns, and I'm a part of a small group of dentists who believe something crazy. We believe the standard of care is just not good enough. We demand the best of ourselves and the best for our patients. We believe the best way, no, the only way to practice dentistry is on our own terms. If you ask the dental consultants or the corporate CEOs, they tell you that what we're doing isn't smart, that fee-for-service dentistry is dead, and that the golden age of dentistry is over. Yet, while others focus on profits first, we focus on the patient first. And yet our offices are some of the most profitable in the entire country because we invest in ourselves and we are doing things right. It's our name on the door and it's our reputation on the line. My name is Drew Burns and I am a fee-for-service dentist. This is the Fee-for-Service Dentist Podcast and these are our stories. Okay, welcome to the Fee-for-Service Podcast. Uh, I am super excited. I'm going to bring on a friend of mine that I've met uh, through the fee-for-service Facebook group and some other places on, online, and we've developed a little bit of a friendship, and I really appreciate that. And his name is Dr. Steven Esposito. He is a 2011 graduate of the University of Detroit Mercy School of Dentistry, so we have another 30-something dentist that's going to really give us a great perspective on a young dentist starting out and getting going. He is a second-generation dentist. He's past president of the Arcolian Dental Arts Society, is a social dental group of dentists, Chicago, Italian-American heritage. So we could probably do an entire podcast as you and me on the Italian-American thing. That would be fun. Right, right. But, but we won't bore everybody. So the next part is... Uh, Inspire Study Club in Barrington, Illinois, focused on comprehensive cases and out-of-the-box approaches to solve clinical administrative dental issues. That I want to ask you some questions about. So getting to now, where are we today? So in January 2020, right? January this year, Dr. Esposito purchased a fee-for-service practice and building in Westmont, Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago. Three operatories two hygienist staff with one clinical assistant, one administrative assistant, two hygiene, one day a week, the associate doctor or the former doctor, the person he purchased it from, and then three days for himself. So first of all, Dr. Esposito, welcome. I know you go by the nickname Sonny, so I'm yeah. Sonny, so I'm, I'm gonna refer to you as Sonny, I'm sure, but <laughs> for, for our listeners. It's Dr. Steven so Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Super excited. I think you're going to have so much to offer. Thank you very much. Well, let's, let's get rolling. So, sure. all right. So lots to, lots to, lots to get into. Let's start with, let's start with, uh, let's give the, the, the listeners and the viewers now a little bit more of your background. Um, where are you from originally? Um, you know, how did you kind of get to University of Detroit Dental School? Tell us a little bit of that. So um, 
I grew up actually just about three miles north of uh, the practice that I'm at right now, and uh, I didn't go very far. Uh, lived there most of my uh, childhood and early adult life. Um, went to college in Chicago at uh, Loyola, Loyola University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do at that time. Uh, you know, my mom being a dentist, I, uh, you know, was inspired uh, by her um, to consider dentistry, but at the time I think I was a bit of a rebel and didn't really want to follow at the same time. Wanted to follow my own path, so I ended up getting a degree in economics. And, um, you know, at that time, early 2000s, uh, it was a very interesting time. I remember, um, you know, first of all, at that time, for a lot of the listeners, they knew we were very young at that point, but um, the uh, the stock market had gone haywire, uh, really, really big. The dot-com boom was in full swing. And um, I remember uh, as it began to crash uh, in 2001, uh, my parents uh, were having a conversation where they were um, they were saying uh, confidentially between themselves, because of this crash, it looks like we're going to have to work 10 more years. And that always stuck with me. And so about halfway through my, um, my undergraduate career, I got interested in economics to consider, well, how does one hedge against this? Because um, the, uh, you know, the reality is that you can be a great clinician, you can make a lot of money uh, if you are diligent uh, in dentistry, you do a lot of cases, but if you don't know the outside environment, uh, it can affect you in a substantial way. And so, um, so I ended up finishing my degree um, in economics. Uh, it, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, a, I'll say a challenging path at that time for me because, you know, the boom uh, had ended and uh, trying to learn about the market was not something that you could just pick up a book. Uh, this is something that I realized fairly quickly that you needed to be all in or, or you're just not going to be good at it. And so a year after getting kicked around um, and just getting you know, menial jobs out of college and everything, I said, you know what, I think I can do better. And uh, ultimately ended up taking more courses and heading back for dental school starting at Detroit in 2007. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I met my wife, and uh, we got married, and um, you know, and certainly a lot of things went into hyperspace at that point. It just seemed like time has not slowed down ever since then. Um, two years after dental school started, I had my first kid. Um, the week before boards, uh, which was not uh, <laughs> not uh, well well timed, but hey, you just make it through, and then uh, graduating in eleven and. Um, and then the career. So it's a, uh, I don't know, kind of a long, uh, a long but interesting version of uh, I think um, how how one would spell out a career, but a good one I'd say. So so fascinating. Uh, I, I I did something similar. I was married after my freshman year at dental school, and a couple of my classmates were as well. And we kind of marked the summer. So in July we got married. Second weekend, second Saturday, my buddies were the first Saturday, and then I have friends the third Saturday, and then some fourth Saturday. So it's kind of funny how we, we, we our, our group stays together and knows, oh, yeah, your anniversary is coming up on the 19th. Yeah, mine's the 12th. 
Um, yeah. and, and my, my classmates used to call me the old man at 27. So. <laughs> hey, so be it, you know. So, so, uh, so while you're in dental school, now you have a, you have a mom who said is a dentist. Uh, so you have a background going in where I, I had zero. Uh, so you had a little bit of an idea what dentistry uh, held for you. What um, what did you find in dental school that was a lot different than sort of your mom prepared or that you had a, a conceived notion that you said, oh, wait, this isn't really like that. What, was there anything like that that you picked up? I think in the early clinical years, it was probably very similar. Um, a lot of our bench instructors were uh, folks who had graduated in the 60s. Um, the techniques, uh, although you could say that they're older, dated techniques, they were time-tested and good. Um, I think that uh, going to dental school at that particular time was um, special in a way because towards the later years um, started the introduction of implants and uh, digital, uh, which was certainly not anything that was uh, covered with dental school in the 70s. Um, and uh, you know, I remember doing my very first CEREC crown back in 2011. Um, we had the version, I think it was a blue cam or whatever, where you had to use the spray all over the tooth, the prep, and then, and now, it's almost like, oh yeah, no one does that anymore. Um, so, you know, but, uh, but still it was intriguing to be like, oh wow, you know, I made this here. Uh, and, uh, you know, whereas uh, my mom's generation of dentists didn't do anything like that. So, uh, so that was kind of cool. But as far as like a setup for, um, for dental school, uh, you know, I didn't have as much of the clinical exposure when I was um, uh, working with her. Uh, before my dental school days. Uh, I was more uh, admin and front desk at the time, although, you know, I did have a little bit of exposure to some of it, so. The future of fee-for-service dentistry is based in membership patients. If you need help starting your membership plan, or if your plan is too big for your team to manage, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com to set up your free membership growth solution demo with our team. Okay. So when you graduated, uh, were you thinking residency? Were you thinking, hey, let's go get a job? What was, what was your process to the next step in your life? I was really torn on it. Um, I will say I felt that I should apply for residency, but I was getting mixed messages about it. Um, I think it was really program dependent. Um, you know, the... Uh, um, you know, the reality is that... Uh, you can only learn so much in four years of dental school. And uh, I think mm -hmm. that, um, although you come out as a doctor, um, you come out just, just enough of a doctor to be licensed but dangerous uh, in a way. And uh, uh, you know, in some ways it's good to have that sort of uh, fresh approach because you're learning a lot and you can be uh, more flexible um, on the other hand, um, especially with the way debt works now, um, it's really crushing to even think of taking a year uh, and making a nominal income in the hopes that you somehow uh, gain a knowledge base that can be uh, um, universally and instantly uh, utilized to help improve your income situation. And 
So after talking with folks and applying for residencies and everything, I ultimately went the route of um, just going straight to private practice. I thought, you know what, let's get to private practice. Let's, uh, I got a wife, I got a kid. Um, you know, I've got loans, I've got all this, you know, let's just, let's do it that way. And I okay. thought I could learn the rest through continuing education and clubs and plus, I, you know, family that could, you know, teach me stuff that, you know, get the benefit of all their years of experience with CE2. So that's okay. Book. Um, Fantastic. Now, how did you go about finding that position? And then what type of position did you start? Well, that's an interesting story because um, I think that uh, at least my experience I've been finding when I've talked with other folks has become more commonplace than maybe years ago, what the experiences were. When I heard stories about years ago, um, the story went something like this. Doctor graduates from dental school, uh, ends up working for somebody uh, for a year or two, maybe three, and then they partner up uh, or the practice gets sold to them and that's it, a very straightforward, simple story. Um, as the industry has changed, it's become more like, well, you end up working for somebody for more than just a year or two and uh, most frequently, uh, it's uh, not for a future equity position. And, um, you know, that, that was something that I really had to learn uh, in my own experiences. And so my first job out of dental school, um, you know, was a, uh, uh, actually a Medicaid job. And uh, it was about, you know, it was about 35, 40 minutes away from my home. And I thought, you know, if I, if I, don't know enough right now, I'll learn it and I'll make some mistakes here and there, but the office really wasn't well run. You know, and that was the first thing I learned is that not offices, all offices are created equal. And during my first two weeks I was there, um, the, uh, the practice had a whopping total of I think about four patients for me for two weeks worth of work. And I was like, there's no way I could pay for anything like this. And so I quickly found a second job um, which, uh, um, you know, paid better, of course, but, uh, you know, I learned that, uh, you know, I learned that uh, just because, uh, just because a job claims they will, um, offer you something doesn't mean that they'll actually meet that. I mean, in hearing the stories, you know, I, you know, and I think the hardest part of it is that when you're, um, when you're, uh, First out, you think, well, I'm a doctor, I'm competent, and I'm fine, and I'll be okay. And you will, but it doesn't mean it doesn't suck. Uh, I mean, the stories I kept hearing over and again were people who were, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I worked for uh, some, you know, uh, um, chop shop corporate that uh, treated us badly, and the turnover rate's really high, and, you know, things like that. And I, I definitely wanted to avoid that. But on the flip side, you know, I was uh, in an opposite situation where I didn't even have more than a couple of patients for the first two weeks. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, this is, you know, insane. And given how Medicaid works, uh, you know, especially in Illinois, I mean, you know, you're talking reimbursements of, you know, I think the highest reimbursement was on a crown, which first had to be approved by the state and it would be $250. 
um, a, an extraction was uh, a surgical extraction was like $57, you know, and then you're getting only paid a percentage of that. And to make matters even worse, um, the state of Illinois is uh, very behind on paying their own, um, you know, their own bills. And so sometimes those collections wouldn't come in for over a year, maybe two years. So when, when you found this job, just for some of our younger listeners and people who sure. have it, you know, might be dental students or what have you, uh, how did you go about finding? I know what I did when I had to find my job, which was in two thought was nine, well, 1989 is when I found my <laughs> job. But how did you go about finding your job? My first job was, uh, you know, very commonly in Chicago, uh, there's a, uh, a website called the uh, um, CDS, the Chicago Dental Society Classic. Okay. Everything from um, brokers to um, advertisers for jobs, for, um, uh, you know, for, um, you know, basically anything that, you know, transactional. Uh, related to job or ship position or an ownership position. So that was really where I combed through first. And um, I'll say that that was probably my first big mistake in a way because, um, you know, with Chicago being a very uh, dentist heavy area and with a lot of folks uh, coming to Chicago, everybody's looking through the same magazine. You know, everyone's through, looking through the same website. And um, that, that means that uh, during July, when uh, everyone starts getting their licenses, you know, the uh, employers have a glut, of, uh, a glut of resumes to work through. And so, supply you know- Supply and demand, yep. Supply and demand, and how do you distinguish yourself from that uh, glut? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to say, um, because, you know, every employer has their, um, has their, um, reason for hiring you know sometimes they're hiring somebody because they want to have someone cover for maternity leave but they don't advertise it that way because they don't want to turn off potential applicants to something that does better or they uh you know they advertise these you know oh make make three hundred thousand dollars your first year out um and what they don't tell you is that that's if you work six days a week over diagnose and over treat and um, you know, just a whole host of uh, you know things that. Well, it, I guess the potential is there, but you know, what does that mean to someone who's coming out of school? You know, it's just a number at, at a point. So, did you uh, did you use other services then? Because you said okay, you use yeah. the CDS site. So, what what other things did you then, or what advice would you give to somebody? Um, I would give advice to folks to first. Uh, if they could, even while in dental school, start making those relationships. Um, you know, kind of figure out where you want to live or work, um, at least for a while. And uh, if you're not going the path of a residency or going the path of the military, um, kind of start thinking about that early on. And I think your best bet would be to start connecting up with um, some of the social groups that uh, are out there. You know, there's a lot of people who are caring. Uh, dentists who, uh, you know, they'd rather work with a word of mouth connection uh, than to, uh, you know, than to just say, okay, well, we got you off of this, this website. And then your competition's a lot less too. So I would recommend doing that. Basically making friends is a really good 
practice in general, in a whole host of areas of life, but definitely with that first job. And, uh, you know, I would say that the, the hardest thing, um, and probably the thing I needed to learn too at that time was that, you know, just be yourself. Don't try hard to impress anybody. Just be yourself. Recognize that you, you know, you're out of school. Um, and if you can find somebody who's patient enough to take you on and can meet your, um, meet your um, you know, financial needs, because especially with loans the way they are today, you're going to have to do the math. Um, you know, if you can do that, that would be my best bet. It's not easy doing it that way. You may have to send out postcards or even just go door to door. I mean, ultimately, the practice I landed on is the one that I walked into 15 years ago uh, just saying, hey, can I shadow you? And that's where it started. And so, so that's mm -hmm. a whole thing because, uh, you know, I wouldn't have guessed that this is where I would end up. Yeah. So you, you did some legwork, right? You put the time into it. So 15 years ago, so we're talking 2000, 2005? 2005, 2006, yep. Right, so that's, that's well before you're in dental school. You know? 2007 is when I started, so yeah, about a year. So it's, so it's never too early. I, I totally agree. I, and, and you had, you know, you had a little help because you had someone at least in the field, um, so that you could say, well, yeah, my mom's a dentist. Oh yeah, I know her. I heard of her. But it gives a at least a familiarity. Oh, this is a dentist or a son of a dentist, so you understand our crazy world a little bit. Um, I didn't have any of that. So for me, my story wasn't. Um, I don't, it's not about me today, but one of the things I did was I just oh, great. <laughs> got information out through a dental supply house and he took me to meet a bunch of places. I looked at, I did look at whatever I could as far as newspapers, because that was a advertising medium. There was not much there. Um, but the dental, uh, the American Dental Association did have the JADA. So would look in that and not much in there. Honestly, that's usually that, at that time was four to five months out of date. So and something went in there, it was from six months ago. So the dental supply house helped me a lot and helped identify really, if they have their finger on the pulse, they're knowing who's busy and who's not. So sometimes he brought me into places where they weren't really looking for an associate per se, but it put the idea, the thought in their head. And, and, and just like you said, you see if there's a relationship, see if there could be some common ground. And Ultimately, then I had to look at, for me, it was, well, which practice to me had the most potential? And then I looked really concentrated in two areas geographically, one with Syracuse, one with Binghamton, and sure. settled in Binghamton. So, so you, you've worked as an associate. Let's, let's bring ourselves a little bit up to, up to date now. So you worked in that associate. You're working in, let's call it a Medicaid bill without, not in, in, without you know, insulting anyone. And then you added another practice to fill in and that had some other things. Now, did you start to look differently because of your experience? Did you say, oh, I got to ask more questions. I have to spend more time there because if you're going to start to work there, you wanted to know more about it. Did you do some of that? If you did, what kind of things did you do? What I'll say is that, um, you know, you have to work for a while to start knowing what questions to ask. Um, you know, I wish, I wish it was easy enough just saying, oh, I trust my gut right out of school to know what the right spot is and where to be and everything. And, 
you know, you don't have enough information at that point, I would say, um, unless you have some special insights somewhere else, um, you don't have enough information to know what the right questions are. Um, you know, it, and, and it's funny, you know, you mentioned how um, you didn't have any help in the uh, industry, you didn't have a family member in dentistry or not. You know, uh, my mom, as much as I love her, wasn't a particularly good resource with regards to jobs because her experience was completely different. Uh, when she got out of school in the 70s, um, she uh, had one job for two years and then opened up her own place. Um, and uh, it's funny because the encouragement that I got from a lot of the uh, older dentist friends that I had say, oh, why don't you just go open a place, right? Which I, I give a lot of kudos to people to uh, who do that. Um, but, uh, you know, there's uh, pluses and minuses to that, too. You know, I would, you know, that was something I struggled with for a long time, too. Well, maybe I should just open my own place. So, but, um, you know, with the way the industry is changing now, and especially going the route of fee-for-service, um, I'll say that it can be a challenge to uh, go all fee-for-service in a brand new paid place when uh, insurances have gotten such a strong uh strong step forward. So, you know, and cer certainly um, having, having resources uh, like family or friends that can guide you can be of help, but at the end of the day, you're the one taking the step forward, regardless of all the research. I certainly can say, um, you know, uh, it was very, was very easy to suffer by uh, paralysis by analysis, which is, mm -hmm. uh, um, which is something that uh, I think, uh, clouded a lot of my years uh, in practice because you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to lose a bunch of money. You don't want to, um, you know, feel the pains of, uh, of whatever pitfalls may arise. So, um, but you know what the other part of it is, and the nice thing about being right out of school is that you also have nothing to lose. You're already, um, you know, you're, you're new. Uh, you can try whatever. And so uh, to touch on one other thing that, um, uh, regarding a second job that I got out of, af got after that, when you asked how do people reach out, what I ended up doing was just reaching out to practices that weren't advertising um, their, uh, uh, their uh, um, job openings. Just say, hey, I know you don't, you know, send a, send a resume. Oh, and this I'll stress for sure for the younger generation. Please make sure that your resumes are in tip top shape. Um, I've seen friends of mine who were like, hey, can you look at my resume? And it, they just aren't written well at all. And, uh, I, and I end up spending an hour or two trying to fix it up for them so that everything from spelling errors to uh, formatting is correct so that it looks appealing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I started sending my resume to places that weren't even advertising. And my second job that I was at uh, ultimately called me out of the blue and said, hey, we do have a position now. Um, why don't you come on in for an interview? And I just waited for them to call me. So that worked out really well. And I was there for about three years, two and a half years. Okay. So let's, 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 let's go a little bit further now. You worked in some associateship jobs. At what point did you say to yourself, I want to own my own? practice do you know was there a defining moment or, or, or even just a general time i think i and, always, i think I and what triggered it right 
I think I always knew that I wanted to own a practice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, certainly from the um, from the uh, financial potential, it's uh, much more substantial than uh, just being an associate. I'll say it can be. Um, again, you know, it, it requires uh, it, it requires a lot of other and a lot of other um, areas of education. You know, I did have the advantage of having uh, this is where having my mom as uh, support was knowledgeable because I always had a gauge for comparing. Oh, you know, and uh, you know, how did how much did you make? Oh, I have never made that. You know, well, you're not an owner, Steve. Okay, well, okay. So you know, there was always that. Uh, basis of comparison and even at my highest height uh, of productivity as an associate it never surpassed my mom's as an owner um, so uh, so I always kind of knew being an owner was there but at the same time uh, what's very interesting is that uh, every dentist runs their office differently uh, everyone skins the cat differently everyone diagnoses and treats differently and um, in doing so, uh, I, I'll say that when I started looking at practices more seriously, I learned that you can't just buy one. I mean, you can, but without doing your homework, you know, they call it due diligence, but um, no one ever really says, well, these are the aspects of due diligence that you should really look at. Um, one, one for me, for example, is uh, the area where uh, you have to look at procedure codes. Because if you buy a practice in a really sexy area, they go, oh, yeah, I've got a, you know, a fancy practice in, you know, uh, some really fancy town that, you know, sounds great on paper. What you might find is, well, you know, the guy is uh, doing crown and bridge on 45% of his productivity. And uh, can you do that? Sure. Um, maybe as a cosmetic dentist, you can do that and get away with that. But if that doesn't jive with your personality type, um, it doesn't jive with uh, what you consider uh, the kind of dentistry you want to do, mm -hmm. doing that because you know when he's diagnosing crowns and you go, oh, you just need a three surface filling, um, you're going to be losing a lot, and uh, and it could actually hurt you um, more substantially, and not just financially. You might just lose confidence in yourself too. Yeah, philosophy of care is huge. I mean, Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. that is the most important thing, especially if you're going to bring somebody in and you're looking at partnerships. It has to be a blend. Absolutely. Okay, so so at what, at what at what particular time are we talking about that you started to look seriously at your own practice? About year four or five. Year four or so five. about 2015, 2016? Yes. Okay, yes. so we have a five-year five year period until you purchase. So is there any... <laughs> Is there anything you want to relate in that period that you learned, oh my Lord, don't do this, or oh my God, do more of this? Uh, you know, share a little bit of that and then, and then we'll get right up to speed to where we are today, so. I think it's very simple to say that, you know, um, owning your own practice in whatever form is the, probably the only way to get the maximum financial potential um, out of uh, being a dentist. But um, again, uh, it's, it's not at all an easy path. Um, when I started looking at practices, uh, the first natural place to go was a broker because, hey, they already have them listed. This makes it easy. Um, the advantage is that, yes, they do make it easy in some ways. Um, the uh, disadvantage is that uh, 
the price of the practice is usually inflated eight to 10% uh, just to cover their cost. And uh, whether they treat you like your friend or not, they are still advocating for their uh, client by selling to the highest bidder. Now, this is an interesting thing to know because the highest bidder nowadays in today's dental industry uh, tends to be the corporates, which um, can tend to outbid. And not all brokers are created equal. Um, you know, I, I learned uh, in my area where, uh, you know, which brokers were more fair, which brokers had a better pool of, uh, of uh, uh, better practices to look at, um, and then also uh, which, which brokers were pricing it, not for me, uh, but for a uh, corporate entity takeover. So, um, so, that's, uh, so that was a really big set of lessons to learn. Um, you know, obviously the philosophy part was a really big part. I mean, I can't tell you how many practices I looked at that, you know, everything was a ton of crown and bridge. Um, and it's like, you know, oh yeah, you know, I have a, you know, a million dollar practice on, you know, 350 patients. It goes, well, okay, you know, you're either charging a lot or you're doing a lot of procedures. Uh, there's only so many ways to, to make you hit those numbers. So, so I had to look at those things. And, um, and then, uh, you know, ultimately you wanna pick a, uh, you know, you wanna pick a location that uh, helps uh, with your overall work-life balance. Um, ultimately, I uh, bought this practice because it's three minutes from where I grew up and it's three minutes from where I live now. And uh, uh, I'm a part of the community in a significant way, which uh, certainly in the fee-for-service model um, helps substantially. Uh, my boys are part of the Boy Scouts. And so I volunteer my office space for all their meetings. Um, I have, uh, we just had wreath sales a couple of weeks ago and I volunteered my garage so that, you know, none of the other, um, boys' dads had to clean out their garage so that the people could pick up. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> that wouldn't happen in my house, let me tell you right now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's nice thing but the garage. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it was nice to be able to make that sort of a rallying point, uh, you know. No, 100%. Of, yeah, kind of Dr. Esposito and, and yeah. uh, having the space for whatever yeah. meetings and, and, and yeah. serve well. So. Yeah, community center. I, Absolutely, I, I'm, I'm I'm fully on board with that. Car washes, uh, car, yeah, you know, um, bake sales. Uh, right. You know, in New York State, it's bottle collections, right? Bottle returns. So sure, sure. Um, we don't have that in Illinois. But yeah. Um, like, I mean, the school itself. Between you've got after prom, you have senior senior class, junior class, freshman, sophomore. Then you have all the different sports programs. You know, it's it, it's it's. I love it. I love being a part of community. So. I, it's, it's never been a problem and we enjoy it. So, um, so let's talk about a couple things because you're an economics major and now you're looking at purchasing a practice. Um, no, I, well, I, I bought well, for the, you mean for someone else? Yeah, no, no. So, so I'm just saying for your background, right, right. economics major. So that's not, you know, that's not the typical bio chemical, chemical, biology, chemistry geek, like I was going to dental school. So you have a whole broader, whole different perspective on economics and you're already talking about such, you know, things in a little bit bigger perspective than I absolutely have ever understood and probably still don't understand. So as you're looking to purchase this practice and go on to your own, did, 
your economics or how did your economics background influence some of the things? You talked about philosophy of care. How did the other part of it, or did it influence any of the things that you were doing? You know, um, it, I'll say that the best way I could describe it was more of an inspiration. Um, economics and finance, although closely related and both dealing with finance or with money, um, are a bit like second cousins to each other, in my opinion. Um, you know, on your day-to-day -day basis, analyzing how the practice is doing and production collections and all that accounting and finance is probably your better bet uh, at having that. But certainly the economics part comes into play uh, for a whole host of other reasons. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's funny when I, um, years ago, uh, I remember getting a haircut. There's a, a barber in my town, his name was Frank. He was 80 years old, really great guy. And, uh, and uh, I'll say that I learned a lot of lessons from him. And, uh, you know, midway through dental school is of course the, you know, 2008 crisis and people are losing their homes and shirts and everything. And I remember going to his uh, barber shop and getting a haircut. And uh, I said, how's business? And he says, Oh, you know, things are slower right now. You know, people are letting their hair grow a little longer. And uh, I remember talking to a, a dental school professor about the same phenomenon. He goes, yeah, people do that in dentistry too. You know, when the economy goes bad. Yes, uh, they do. They, uh, they, they let that uh, decayed tooth decay a little mm -hmm. longer in, uh, in the hopes that nothing happens to it. Mm -hmm. So I guess in sort of anecdotal ways, uh, you know, um, cute anecdotal ways, uh, that was very helpful to know. But Certainly having the economics background helps with things very much with, you know, the, the story I told earlier with uh, my parents who were in the market, um, you know, 10 years lost. You know, if you think of, you know, rather than looking at dollars, if you think of your day-to-day -day existence as how much life you've used or time of your life you've used um, when it comes to uh, earning, you know, don't look at things in terms of dollars. Look at things, hey, that was three days of my life or 10 years of my life. And that way it changes your view very much on how your day-to-day -day activity is, you know. And, uh, and I think that puts a lot into perspective because, uh, you know, as much as we all want to be financially successful, uh, I've certainly reached a point in my life where I realized that there are many more riches than just uh, what's in my bank account. Um, and, uh, now those those are hard lessons. Those are lessons that you don't learn um, until you start making these, uh, I'll call them phase shifts in your career. You know, um, I remember the days before becoming a dentist and how I used to think. And then I became a dentist. I would, I would look back at myself and go, why did I ever think like that? That was so silly. And then uh, associating for a few years, I would look back at my early years of practice and go, why would I ever think like that? And and even now being an owner and there's this huge phase shift from being an associate, I go, wow, I have so many other things to think about. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, it's not just show up and do the work. Um, I had talked with somebody else who was an owner of a practice at one point. And, uh, and uh, they said to me kind of as a joke, they said, uh, you know what a synonym for the word owner is? I said, what? And they said, janitor. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, all the things that come up uh, that, that weren't expected. Oh, someone calls in sick. Uh, you know, the uh, patient didn't pay the bill. You know, you can produce all you want, but if they don't pay the bill, it's like you never did it. Um, you know, and those things as an associate, you don't really worry about, but now you do because, you know, when that uh, practice loan bill comes in, oh, you want the, <laughs> you want your patients to pay their bills too. So, uh, so you got a lot of things to juggle and things to look at, but, you know, you get a phase shift in uh, perspective on how you manage things like time and money. And, you know, I'll say in the last year, I've gotten, uh, gotten in a lot of conversations with uh, my accountant and accounting friends just to get me up to speed as to what areas I really need to improve upon. And this has nothing to do with dentistry specifically, but it's just to make sure that the efforts that went into the dentistry um, uh, reap the rewards or pay off properly. So getting familiarized with accounting and finance uh, early on, I think is a huge advantage. Another friend of mine, he also had a, a business background. Uh, he had degrees in accounting and finance and uh, bought his practice just a year out of school and uh, has been doing fantastic. Uh, so, uh, you know, so kudos to him. And, uh, and uh, I think that, uh, you, know, it, you know, to kind of sum it up, the econ does help because you know, when you look at the market, uh, which you should, uh, that lets you know a little bit about what's going on and then, the, uh, the accounting and finance part will help what goes on in your day-to-day -day for your practice. Okay, so you get a, I'm assuming you got a contact back from the dentist that you ended up purchasing in practice because you said yes. that earlier, right? Yes. So he contacts you and says what? Uh, you know, I had kind of slipped uh, a few hints over the years. <laughs> I'm interested, you know, and and you know, actually, this is a really good piece of advice I wish I had heard uh, back then, but to anyone who's looking for a practice, uh, do look at the age of the individual who's saying they want to sell. Because, uh, or I'll say age and health, um, because if someone's 50 and says they might want to sell someday, I don't believe it. Um, and if someone's 65, uh, they say, well, I want to sell, uh, that's more likely. And I could be wrong uh, on individual cases, but on an average, anyone I'd run into who was um, before the age of 65, you know, 65 is a magic number because that's when Medicare kicks in. Um, I think a lot of dentists, especially solo practitioners who only own one practice, uh, their big concern is healthcare. And uh, that's a big bill to pay. And if you own your own practice, um, and don't have a spouse who has a job which covers healthcare, that's a good 20 grand for you, your spouse, and your kids every year. And so uh, that 20 grand, oh, even more, 25 maybe? I don't know. I've heard 20, um, but yeah, probably even more now. But then you hit that magic 65 number and you go, oh, I'm eligible for Medicare, which, uh, I mean, there's, there's other parts to it than that, you know, they, you know, fine. Now your income level is high enough to go, Oh, you're, you're Medicare uh, uh, eligible now, but your income's too high. So <laughs> we're going to sting you there. So, so you can never really escape, but it is a burden. I'll say that is um, less heavy um, at that point. Um, not, not off of you, but you know, at that point at 65, 
you know, very few people still have their kids in, um, at home. Um, maybe that will change in the next few years with the number of kids coming back to uh, the house after uh, college ends uh, just because of the student loan debts. Um, but I'll say that, uh, you, know, um, you know, those are certainly things to keep in mind. Okay, just making a couple notes I'm going to get back to. Um, so age definitely is a factor in your, in your opinion. Um, I think that's, that's wise. I think a lot of times people, and I've heard from a couple of people just recently that, uh, even if they're at the broker, they're selling the practice and they have a deal in place and the guy, I, I want to stay on and work three days. Your practice only makes, uh, you just take the example If a practice earns, let's say a net of $300,000 to the doctor. You're buying the practice. You're going to have some attrition, some loss, but that's a full-time practice with just that doctor. If you come in and this doctor wants some of that $300,000 to pay their loan and live on, and now the person, oh, I want to stay and work three days. Well, you have a four-day week practice. I'm not purchasing a one-day a week practice for me and a three-day for you. So it's it's and this is at a broker for sale but it's like after the fact so it's you're you're dead on right i don't know the age of the person but i don't, i'm not sure age is really relevant I, I think it's really the mindset of the person because i know some people uh you know a good friend of mine two years ahead of me he's about 59 he's retired he's out uh another buddy of mine yeah he's right in that age 60 he just retired um you, you never know i'm 57 i have no plans on retiring. I couldn't even put a number on. In fact, I, no, I, I agree with you there, Sonny. That the mindset is there. Um, yeah. Certainly, the um, 65 or 60-ish number is maybe a, a, a soft indicator, perhaps. Oh, I, I don't disagree. I'm just saying that a lot sure. of times, you know, a lot of times, don't be fooled by it because you right. never know. Well, my mom, yeah. she's 70 next year, and. Still has no plans to retire. <laughs> there, you there you go. There you go. Good for her. No, so someday might be us, right? So God bless. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so so you get into the practice. You're buying the practice. Um, so it's Jan it's January. When do you close on the practice, and when do you start the practice? Um, so um, I felt, especially being that it's a fee for service practice that, um, well, kind of taking a step back to the point where you had said, well, you want to make sure that when you're buying a practice, um, that the person who's selling sells enough portion of it to you that it still makes uh, sense against being an associate, right? And so, uh, you know, my doc, for example, uh, he didn't know how long he wanted to practice for. And I told him basically that it only makes financial sense for me to buy the practice if you give up three of your four days. Exactly. I mean, and uh, and he was willing to do that, which is good. Now, some folks might worry and go, "Well, what if people don't like me, or you know, uh, they aren't expecting that?" The transition handoff has to be done really, really well. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure there's uh, bases of comparison to use, uh, and especially when um, there's not enough patients to go around for two full doctors, uh, it's, it can be very hard for patients. And so what we did was uh, in the transition, uh, first we sent out a letter and the letter was also an invitation to a party um, 
this was uh, last year, November, uh, we threw a, a party catered by a local um, restaurant. We threw it at the Knights of Columbus Hall here. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, I got to meet a lot of the patients in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, that really helped out a ton, you know, and of course it sprung up the inevitable questions. Oh, are you retiring? Are you retiring to the old doc? And at that time the answer was no. And so, um, so in this transition period, uh, you know, and, and I'll say the time frame from starting to, you know, you know, the, the, fir the first call to the time of closure ends up being about seven months. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you obviously have to do your due diligence. I had to do my financial math to make sure that I could make enough money. If broker I involved? What's that? Was a broker involved? No, not okay. at all. Uh, one of the blessings and curses of having taken as long of uh, a time as I did to search for practices, I learned how to look at them. I really, I mean, I learned how to look at good practices. And a lot of times, I mean, I, I can tell you that uh, had I gotten the broker involved, uh, you know, I would have paid an additional sixty-five, seventy $70,000. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, maybe in the grand scheme of things, doesn't sound like much when you divide it over 20 years. Or ten or twenty years, but um, but uh, you know that's uh, that's a CBCT. You know that's uh, you know that's money in your pocket. That that could be whatever. You know that's that's a a year of kids' college in ten years from now. So there's there's a lot of reasons to want to try to um, make sure that you're kind of in the right spot, but weigh it against what your cash flow would be. Mm -hmm. um, Have you checked college tuition lately? Uh, I'm guessing right now about 65, but yeah, no, I like that 70 grand, that's less than a lot of yeah. colleges are going to be for one year tuition right now. So, right. Uh, right. I, I know what Syracuse is. My, my youngest graduated two years ago and I know where they rank and, and that's not unusual to be 70, 75 now. It's going to be pushing 80 pretty soon. So yeah, it's, it's real dollars. It's, no question. it's, real, it's real dollars. And, uh, you know, time value is very important. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not just seventy or eighty thousand dollars you're paying now. That's uh, with whatever interest rate over ten years. And that's the other big take home I would give to anybody in any aspect of dentistry is um, there's a very great quote. It's attributable to Warren Buffett. It goes uh, that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And uh, certainly you do not want to let uh, you know let that go unchecked because, you know, even if you said, you know, a, a good example, I was, uh, I'm having a student at my office shadow me um, and uh, we had seen a Facebook post. I don't know how legit it is, but, uh, you know, certainly it turned a few heads. Uh, it said that the... Um Thanks for listening to the fee-for-service dentist podcast. If you would like to share your fee-for-service story, please fill out our contact form at ffsdentistry.com. Also, be sure to join our fee-for-service dentistry Facebook group. For help starting your dental membership plan, visit dentalmembershipdirect.com and membershipmastercourse.com. Finally, for help with in-house financing, visit dentalfinancingdirect.com. And don't forget, your story is what you make of it. This is your name on the door and your reputation on the line. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.